Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation Peter Kadzis and I had with Jim Aloisi, the former state secretary of transportation and current board member at the advocacy group Transit Matters. Our focus was how the T can make a comeback as Massachusetts slowly creates a new normal following the first wave of COVID-19. It's not going to be easy, by the way. A recent Suffolk University WGBH News Boston Globe poll showed that even if a COVID vaccine is developed someday, 25% of Massachusetts residents still won't be comfortable taking public transit. But before we dove into that and the possibility of using the COVID crisis to reinvent the way we think about urban mobility generally, we started off talking about how Jim has used cooking to get through the past few months. Before we talk about that very important and very substantive stuff, I think both Peter and I want to talk to you about the culinary exploits that you've been documenting on Twitter and maybe elsewhere. I don't know if you're Instagramming or TikToking or any of that. Um, you have been- TikTok, oh my God. I just do, all I do is Twitter. That's the only thing. Yeah, I'm on the same page as you. So you've been cooking up a storm during this pandemic, right? Is that a fair assessment? I have been cooking up a storm. I, you know, so I, I've always liked to cook. I like to eat. Um, and you know, my my mother was 93. She died in September. And um, in the weeks after she died, we were, we were moving things around, trying to make space for my father, who was in his last days. But we were trying to make him more comfortable. And I found two um, boxes. And the boxes each had, they had six three-ring binders, and three were marked with my name and three with my sister's name. And she had, over the years, she had compiled all of her recipes. And so so there's a book of biscotti and cakes, and there's a book of hors d'oeuvres and salads, and there's a book... And she's got notes on it. You know, Jim, this is the cookie you liked, but I changed the orange to lemon, and... So I decided, as part of a way to sort of comfort myself, um, to keep her close by and to start cooking from, from her, her cookbooks, her recipes. You had no idea that she had been compiling this no. wisdom for you and your sister? That's incredible. I mean, if I thought about it too much, I'd, I'd just keep crying all the time. So I don't, <laughs> it's a really lovely gesture, right? And because cooking for her was the one thing that brought her, I can, in her life, um, quite a bit of meaning. And so um, the fact that she actually took the time to write these notes and, you know, as I say, very specific about, when I go to the store, this is what I buy. And when I, it's really, um, so it's a way for me during the day to, to really be comforted knowing that I'm doing something productive in my mind. And so ironically, I'm, I think I'm sort of mastering the biscotti making. I mean, it's pretty cool stuff. And then at night I take a picture of dinner. Some, not some nights I don't, but just, I was doing it just to build community, um, you know, I've, I've been hosting a Zoom seminar on transit once a week at MIT, just as a way to build community. And so by doing the, I have uh, at least one good friend who privately DMs me his meal every night, you know. So we each have to find a way um, to think about what we're passionate about and not lose it in, in this time and to 
to do a virtual sharing with others. And so that's what that's all about. I don't want to put you on the spot. Might you be willing to share a basic biscotti recipe with our listeners? Not now, but, you know, we could add it to the end of the podcast after this conversation wraps up and after we move on to the tea and other uh, more serious-minded stuff? Sure. In fact, the one that I'll probably give you, um, and I'd ask my mother not to, you know, <laughs> she's like, why are you doing that? Um, uh, <laughs> She has a recipe for black pepper biscotti that will knock your socks off. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So listeners, stay tuned for that. But now we should probably give you a chance to talk about the tea and about reopening more generally. Can you recap your core argument or arguments in the piece that you just wrote for Commonwealth about how the tea should be getting back to normal and how the tea is actually apparently planning to get back to normal. Well, it's interesting because since the article appeared, you know, the tea is, they seem to be tentative moves in the right direction, although they're certainly tentative moves. My article basically was saying, look, we're not learning enough from other places and best practices and we're being too timid. My concern is that we don't want to give people the impression that the tea is unsafe. I don't think it's any less safe than going to the grocery store. In fact, it may be, and I said in the article, more safe. Why do I say it? Everyone seems to be agreeing these days that transmission risk is tied to a, a formula, let's say. And the formula is, is proximity, protection, plus time. How close are you? How protected are you with respect to mask wearing or facial protection wearing? And how long are you together? And, and if those three indicators are on the higher side on time and on the lower side of I'm not protected or you're not protected or we're very proximate for a long period, that's a problem. If you think about riding the T, um, you're typically not proximate for a, an extended period of time like you would be in a meatpacking plant where that's your job all day long right, or a hospital or a healthcare environment. If you see where the clusters of problems are, they're in those environments where people are proximate, previously hadn't been as well protected as they might be, but also spending a duration of time. So the tea might be actually safer. And I think the tea makes, frankly, a mistake when it doesn't act to do things like facilitate the governor's order that people wear face coverings. Now, I'm not asking them to enforce it and have police. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, why don't we work with a nonprofit, get some masks, hand them out to people, facilitate it. It's more than messaging. Messaging is important, but you need to do something else to change the culture, at least in the moment, where everybody wears a mask or a face covering. And so aggressively figure out how to facilitate it. When it comes to riders per bus, I have been saying since early May, in a previous Commonwealth article, limit to 10 people per bus. Now that was a little aggressive at the time. Chicago was limiting to 15. Rhode Island limits to 15. Others are limiting. The T was not willing to go there. Now yesterday they're moving in a different direction, if you notice, partly in response to a very powerful um, and thoughtful report that was issued by a better city, trying to make the point that the best and safest way to introduce transit to people, we're not saying this is the permanent condition, but for now, spacing, distancing, mask wearing, protecting the bus driver with the screen, and 
wanting more frequent service. So people say, well, if you're limiting people per bus, then you're going to leave people behind. And my answer is no, 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 no. We know where the high demand routes are. The data already tells us that. The 28 bus, the 111 bus, the, the Silver Line 5, there's a bunch, the Silver Line 3. By the way, no coincidence, those are carrying essential workers, typically lower wage essential workers, by the way. And so we know where the high demand routes are. Let's focus on those. Let's redeploy some service so that we're giving those folks frequent all-day service, right? That is the, the, the direction I would like to tee to be moving in more aggressively. My concern, and I want to repeat this, I've been in public service. I know how difficult this is under difficult times. I was secretary during the last Great Recession. This is a much more challenging time. So nothing I'm saying is intended to be super hypercritical of people who are doing a very difficult and often thankless job. But as advocates, we don't stop our work. And it, you know, I think that we're not moving quickly enough to take the kind of action that's necessary to restore the perception of safety at the T. If we're gonna have a resurgence of urban life in any shape, manner, or form, you need a functioning trans public transportation system. We're gonna be faced, if we think we had Carmageddon before COVID, we gotta, we're gonna, whatever's worse than Carmageddon, that's coming if we don't figure out how to reimagine our urban streetscapes now to prevent that from happening. And so in combination with what I'm talking about for the T, I'm also saying that the T needs to work closely with municipalities to start thinking about a different way to uh, imagine and to design and to use the urban streetscape. Jim, let me ask you a general cultural question. L listening to you um, talk made me think or wonder, is Massachusetts political life so slow to act and often so unimaginative because people are afraid of being blamed for something? Oh, sure. Well, Peter, it's human nature that people are risk averse. Um, and that's usually a good thing. Um, but you can't innovate if you're not willing to take risk. The, by definition, taking innovation requires risk. You know, there was a story several years ago, it may have been apocryphal, but it's a good story, that Google would give out once a month the worst idea of the month award, right? <laughs> and it was not meant to be a joke, it was meant to sit, send a message, which was, if, even if it's a bad idea, we're happy that you came up with it because we want you to think and innovate and explore. It's what Franklin Roosevelt said in the 1930s, bold, persistent experimentation. Try a method. If it fails to work, try another. But in any event, act. And, you know, that the difference between that policy and today's policy is pretty stark. And so I think people are in politics and government generally, but certainly in Massachusetts, are often afraid to act because they're concerned that nobody has their back. I think the gov it's the governor's order that people wear masks or face coverings. He's got their back. It's the p general public who is expressing a desire that people act to keep them safe. We've got their back. So I, you know, but the, there is this inherent human nature of uh, being risk averse and therefore being timid 
um, because people are worried no one's got my back. And I don't think that's the case now. I think we, I think both from the gubernatorial perspective and from a general public goodwill perspective, people are willing to give people some leeway if they explain what they're doing and why and, uh, and making people understand that we're in a new world, but we're trying things. We're not just sitting back and keeping our fingers crossed that everyone's going to wear a mask. We're actively out there facilitating it, right? I, I never really thought of the no one has your back aspect, which was naive of me. Um, and uh, no, no, Jim, um, uh, that, that was a great answer. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I've seen it. I've lived it. You know, yeah. um, when I was secretary, one of the things I made clear to people is if we're going to do something new and I and I approve it, I get your back, right? If it fails, don't worry about it. And, you know, most times things don't fail. You tweak them, you work them. But we live in a world, this has nothing to do with COVID in particular, but we live in a world where finger pointing, you know, is a part-time sport. And so people are generally reluctant to step out of their comfort zone. To what extent are financial constraints going to make it difficult to do the sort of things that you're saying the T should be doing right now? How much would it cost to put in place the sort of programs that you're describing? So let's let's parse out a few things. The federal relief bill has provided the T with um, roughly $840 million. So um, that is enough money to cover roughly what the T is probably going to lose over this period in fair revenue. So from from a current and for fiscal 2021 20, perspective, things are kind of calm, I think, because of the federal relief bill. However, we know parking revenues are down. We know advertising revenues are down. It's not like it's a day at the beach. Part one. Part two, we don't we don't have an understanding yet fully about what the cost of stepped up sanitization is. We heard, I heard a number at a recent FMCB board meeting about a million dollars a week. It would be good to have more specifics because that's new. We also uh, need to figure out what it's gonna cost to retrofit every bus to have a truly effective screen between bus driver and, and rider. We need to understand, again, can the T work with a philanthropic group Maybe at no or little cost to get face coverings for people, to hand them out. All of these things need to be explored. So the the cost of COVID is real, but not yet fully quantified. Part three, this is one reason why the legislature must act. The House passed a pretty good bill before COVID. Unfortunately, because it was a bill before COVID, there are lots of elements of it that probably need to be revisited. The Senate now has the bill. The Senate and the House leadership have both expressed concern about, for example, doing what the House did, raising the gas tax. I say this is the best time to raise the gas tax. Price of gas is under two bucks a gallon. Uh, very few people are driving. 99 and 44 100s percent sure that if you're driving, you're working, right? So we're not talking about hurting the unemployed by raising the gas tax. Part three, subsection B. The mayor of Boston has a bill filed on his behalf by Chairman Boncori on the Senate side to give the city of Boston the power to impose a parking fee on commercial parking spaces. They should pass that bill immediately and give Mayor Walsh 
the power he's asked for. The T is to its credit, asking, as I am asking, cities and towns to reimagine the public realm, to build dedicated bus lanes, protected cycling lanes. They need money. A parking fee is the perfect answer to encouraging mode shift and recognizing that we're subsidizing parking way beyond the way we're subsidizing transit. So long-winded answer to your question is, the federal relief bill is, is helping quite a bit. We need to quantify the new costs and we need the legislature to step up and take some action to raise net new revenue this year. Peter, since you're an expert in legislative action or inaction, what do you think the odds are of the general court doing what Jim is saying they should do? Well, even before COVID, there appeared to be a standoff between the House and the Senate. Um, Speaker DeLeo, before the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce, repeated his um, support for uh, raising more transit revenue. Um, I don't completely understand uh, the reluctance of the Senate. Um, There are a lot of things, you know, perhaps it's the progressive impulse to um, not want to burden lower income people with a, you know, a tax on gasoline. Um, There's a big part of me that thinks it's just the the sheer bloody mindedness of, okay, the House proposed this, the the Senate's not going to go along with it. Um, There's um, a real lack of common purpose on Beacon Hill that I find surprising given that it's dominated by the Democrats. You know, you, you basically have an ultra-progressive House and a moderately conservative—I'm sorry, an ultra-progressive Senate and a moderately conservative House. I I find it somewhat paradoxical that the moderately conservative House is the one being more aggressive on on the T at the moment. Yeah. I'll tell you one other idea that I think needs to be put into action. It's the governor's support. Uh, an idea that we should have what's called the Transportation Climate Initiative, TCI. Um, And that wouldn't kick in for another year or two, but you could could issue revenue anticipation notes now against it, right? And so one of the things that the legislature could do in the current bond bill that's also in front of the, the body is to um, is to raise revenue anticipation notes, authorize revenue anticipation notes in anticipation of TCI, which we know the governor supports. So he'd be unlikely to oppose it. So this that's real money, and those are the kinds of things that need to happen now. We can't wait much longer um, because the T needs the money, and we can't stop some of the other initiatives, like for example. The Fiscal Management and Control Board last fall uh, or had a resolution to electrify the Providence Line, the Fairmont Line, the line from Lynn to Boston. We need to move forward on that. Those dirty diesel locomotives are adding particulate matter to the air. And we know from the recent Harvard study that long-term exposure to particulate matter is tied to a 15% higher COVID mortality rate. So making our, and you know, are diesel locomotives the only contributor to particular matter? No, but they are, you know, we need a lead, just like we need to begin to reduce auto emissions. And the last thing we need is to allow Carmageddon to come back 
magnified by a scale of five. Jim, what's your take on some of the ideas that are being looked at or maybe even pursued right now by municipalities when it comes to changing urban streetscapes and shifting the way that motor vehicles are going to interact with cyclists and pedestrians as we head into the post-COVID reality. I shouldn't say post-COVID reality, the um, the reality of living with COVID. Maybe that's a better formulation. Yeah, COVID transition period. Look, I, Joe Curtitone, the mayor of Somerville, is, is leading, and I think the mayor of Boston has been expressing his desire to move in this direction. Cambridge, I don't know where Cambridge is. I haven't heard much. Um, What's Curtitone doing? Um, he's setting aside, a, uh, uh, and I don't know, I, I don't know the exact names of the streets, but I, there's a bunch of streets that he's setting aside, I believe, uh, as pedestrian only, cycling only. So he's beginning an effort to, to move in a direction of restoring the streetscape back to the people. This is a public health issue, and it's a small business issue. If you want local small business to thrive and succeed, you need to have a streetscape that you can demonstrate density, urban density without crowding. People, you need foot traffic, you need people to feel comfortable. During three seasons, you can have outdoor dining, you can, and, and, that, and that safe uh, foot traffic. And so wider sidewalks, protected cycling lanes. A lot of people have decided to shift mode, not from bus to car, but from bus to walking or cycling. Let's give those people safe ways to do it and dedicated bus lanes, which the T has been for, and which speed up the ride. More frequency means less congestion on a bus. Put all those things together, you need to start taking out lanes and you need to start really reimagining the streetscape. So just like we reimagined the streetscape in the middle of the 20th century and made it very auto-centric, the mayors and the town managers of the inner core urban municipalities uh, really need to do the same thing now. This is not something that you need to study for two years from now. This is now, and I think um, we will, it's a, it's a public health issue, it's clearly a social equity issue, and it's a small business issue. The economy won't recover if we're not, if we're going to go back to the status quo pre-COVID. It just, because that's, that's not a, a, a condition in the urban environment that you can have density without crowding. Jim, a final question. Um, in, in this, your answer can transcend COVID if necessary. Is, is there a, um, uh, a vital, necessary transit development that we that you haven't mentioned that we haven't considered that that you think needs more attention paid to it i think these do tie into covid but even but they were they were good ideas before covid they're more essential now i think all buses should be made free number one if you made every bus and not just the t i'm talking about regional transit authorities if you made every bus in the state free it would it would cost around 120 million dollars a year right? It's not a heavy lift. 60 million is the number for the T. So make every bus free. That, that means the T saves money because it doesn't have to order, buy, or maintain fare equipment anymore for buses. It's a social equity issue. It's also a, a way to get people back on the bus, number one. So fare policy, in connection with that fare policy, 
the T needs to normalize commuter rail fare so that it's not more expensive for someone coming from Haverhill or Fitchburg to come to Boston by train than it is by car, which is often the case today. So that's part one. Um, and part two is the cities need, they need money, they need support to make these kinds of alterations in the public realm take place, which is why I've been a big fan of the mayor's bill on parking. Um, and I'm watching how Joe Curtitone is leading on this very carefully because, um, you know, it's a really interesting test case. We know Everett, for example, uh, deployed dedicated bus lanes to great fanfare and support. We need to keep doing this in order to build a different type of new normal for people. Um, so I would say those initiatives, electrifying regional rail, leading on the issue of emissions, very important. We need to reduce particulate matter in the air, make the air healthier for people. And then transit con connectivity. I think the new T should have a service model that runs frequent all day service all day long. There shouldn't be peaks anymore. Just like we're flattening the COVID peak, we need to flatten the peak congestion times. I think if the, the, the T leads in this and provides frequent all day service, it's easier for the business community to then re-enter with staggered work hours. So when I hear people say, we don't need to provide frequent all day service now because there's no demand, of course there's no demand. That will come, you need to lead and provide that so that if I run a business, now I know how I can work on staggered work hours because you've given my employees or my customers the benefit of no peak service anymore, but a reliable, steady stream of service all day long. Those would be the initiatives I'd be pushing really hard. Jim Aloisi, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to uh, doing a future scrum in person. And maybe we could do it in the test kitchen. Exactly. We'll do it in a test kitchen. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us if you've got a few seconds and talk back to us. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic or anything else we have or haven't discussed recently. Also, any suggestions or requests you might have for future episodes. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kansas. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. S as in sandwich, Matthews with one T. And hey, before we wrap up, here is Jim Aloisi's mother's black pepper biscotti recipe. This is Rose Aloisi's recipe for black pepper biscotti. Here are the ingredients you're going to need. Two cups of flour, half a teaspoon baking soda, and a half a teaspoon of baking powder, an eighth of a teaspoon of salt. You'll need two generous teaspoons of ground black pepper. I grind my peppercorns so it's fresh, but you can use it pre-ground from a jar. You'll need a half a cup of oil. You'll need a cup of sugar. You'll need two large eggs and you'll need one good teaspoon of vanilla plus one cup of chopped nuts. My mother used walnuts. I tend to use almonds. Either will do. Here's what you do. You get two bowls. In the first bowl, you sift the flour, the baking soda, the baking powder, salt, and pepper. Put that aside. 
In your second bowl, you wanna whip up the oil with the sugar until it's a little bit light and fluffy. You can do this by hand with a whisk or in a machine. Uh, once you've whipped up the sugar and oil, you add the eggs one at a time. When that's done, you add the vanilla. And when that's done, you gently fold in, stir in the sifted flour mixture. Um, and at the very end, you put in your chopped nuts. This will form a fairly uh, workable batter. It won't be very loose and it won't be very thick. It'll be sort of in the middle. Um, I put it in a square baking pan that I have uh, for biscotti. You, if you don't have such a pan, which my mother did not, put flour in your hands and take the dough and create two flat-looking logs about 12 inches each. And then you want to bake it. Um, I baked mine for about 23 minutes. You could go as high as 25 or 27 minutes all at 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, take it out, let it cool. When it's cool, you slice it into biscotti and you put it back in the oven at a low temperature, lower temperature, about 277 degrees for say 11 minutes per side. I guarantee you um, these will be a sweet and savory treat you'll make all the time. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.